Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi, my podcast. Uh, As always, I'm not a rabbi, but if I was, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. I'm an ordained spiritual director, uh, and I work with people in groups, workshops, and one-on-one and spiritual counseling, and I enjoy doing that very much as one of the things I do in my life. It's evolved over the years. Today, just before I recorded this podcast, I submitted to my publisher the second draft of a book I've been writing. Uh, And that uh, feels weird because now she's going to write me back and go, you have to work on this part, this part, this part, this part, this part, and this part. But that's okay. It's been quite an experience. Um, The book's tentative title is I Thought He Was Dead. Uh, which is something that broadcasters get a lot if they're not on the air on a regular basis anymore. If someone says, oh, I just bumped into Ralph Ben-Murgy, and they go, oh, I thought he was dead. Um, And you can actually see that look cross people's faces as you're speaking to them, and they only knew you from the radio or television, and they just kind of are looking at you, and you're thinking, I know what you're thinking, which is a feeling that you get when you watch the Academy Awards, which I haven't for years now. But when you watch the Academy Award, they would always have this segment where they have the people who passed away this year. And half of them, you were like, I did not know they were dead. And the other half, you're like, I thought like I was dead like four years ago. So I'm now in that category of age and uh, inactivity on the air, as it were, compared to my old life where I was doing daily shows. I realized while I was writing the book that I'd done daily shows for years on end. Uh, which is a whole thing to do one every day, Monday through Friday, I must say. But the book is a journey into elderhood. It's about getting older. It's about the autumn of life. Um, It's about how I realized that I, like so many other people, was really, I was backing into my elderhood, that I wasn't walking into it with a full heart. And I certainly didn't have a spiritual game plan for it. So I really had to do some work. As I was giving workshops, I was realizing that I can benefit from these things. One of the things about being in a position of, of, of a teacher, of a rabbi or, or whatever, um, is that it's often easier to counsel than to, to practice. You know, if you could meditate more, that would be great, he says, and then goes home and doesn't meditate. So uh, it was a humbling experience. But I also drew on a lot of different people and, and influences over the uh, years that have really affected me. I would say that the kind of Judaism that I come from and, and was very traditional from a North African Moroccan family. We just did what you're supposed to do. We weren't Orthodox, but we weren't. When we came to Canada, we were shocked that Jewish people from Eastern Europe, which is almost everybody in North America who's Jewish, Ashkenazi Jews, we were Sephardic Jews, people, Spanish speakers literally is what it means. Um, they had this whole thing of you could choose what kind of Jew you could be, a Reformed Jew, a Reconstructionist Jew, a Conservative Jew, an Orthodox Jew, an Ultra-Orthodox Jew. I remember saying to my mom, wow, these people, I can't believe it, they get to choose. This is fantastic. So you'd go into a Reform home and, you know, be standing there while they opened the fridge and you'd see a slab of bacon in the fridge. And I'd think, wow, that's so not what we do. But then they'd say, well, in our shul that you're, you, you can, the rules, the laws, the halakhic laws, as they're called, were uh, subject to, to interpretation and optional. And yet in an ultra-Orthodox home, there was absolutely nothing optional, absolutely nothing. And coming from that, I, I was having to go to Hebrew school with kids who were not Sephardic like me, because we didn't have a Hebrew school yet, there weren't enough of us. Uh, so I grew up with these Ashkenazi people and really adopted their way of, of doing Judaism in many ways. What it's evolved into is what, what's called Jewish renewal. And that is a whole beautiful piece where East kind of meets West. And I don't mean Eastern European. I mean, things like Buddhism really start to become seep into the, the fabric at the same time that things then in Judaism called the Hasidic path is more like Sufis, more mystic. And my Judaism is much more a pantheistic kind of Judaism, a myst- mystical kind. So uh, analogous to that would be in Christianity, the teachings of Meister Eckhart, 
which if you read them just, well, for me, they just blow my mind. Uh, there's a beautiful book I'm just uh, reading right now that is uh, on the teachings of Eckhart, of Meister Eckhart, um, through the eyes of a man named Matthew Fox, who I've spoken about on this program before. And what Fox has done, he's brilliant, but what he's done is he's matched up Eckhart with great theological thinkers of different times and eras. So, for instance, the Jewish person he meet, he matches him with is uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. And Heschel is uh, uh, one of the great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century. So he says, here's where these two meet. And he does that with um, Barry, Thomas Barry, the environmental Christian. He, these were these two people meet. So I love exploring that. And in the book, I certainly draw on the wisdom of a lot of people. But the central issue that I'm trying to address in the book is that there's a simple commandment to respect our elders, and we're not. Frankly, we're just not respecting our elders. That I, I speak about the idea of the pizza party for the retirement, where that you know at two o'clock, say goodbye to Jim at two o'clock after years of service, and you go because you're kind of hungry at two o'clock. A slice of pizza wouldn't hurt, and you pat him on the back, well-meaning, pat him on the back, and say, "Hey, you keep in touch," and you never see Jim again. And his wisdom leaves with that cardboard box of things. And his experience leaves with that cardboard box of things. We have no wisdom councils. I serve on a wisdom council for a Jewish uh, organization of men called Menchwork. And I just thought, what a brilliant thing, a wisdom council. Collect the experience and the wisdom of people and do something with it. So I'm very excited that I finished this draft of the book. Um, my publisher will torture me and hopefully will, in the new year, be able to put the book out. Uh, if you have a thought on that title, give it to me because some people love it and other people are like, ooh, that's weird. Uh, so do what you will with it. So that's that, my friends. Um, I wanted to talk to this person when I first started this podcast and said, yeah, okay, well, we'll get it together. And then everything else hit and it became 2020 and crazy world ensued. But now I finally get to do it because for me, she's one of my teachers and I enjoy speaking with her. And she is someone who I can engage in a deep ecumenism with. She has a tradition she comes from, I have one I come from, but we can help each other to cross those unnecessary bridges to each other. Her name is Marty Tyndall. And um, I think I first heard of Marty when she was um, the moderator of the United Church of Canada. Uh, and I knew her son uh, through environmental causes and politics, wonderful guy. And I knew her husband through politics as well. But Marty and I have had some nice conversations and I thought it was time that we convened on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Marty Tyndall, hi, how are you? Hi, Ralph. I'm, I, want it, I want to say for the record, I knew you weren't dead. You are one <laughs> of the most alive spirits who I know. It's very kind I, of you. I love the title of the book, and uh, it's just a, such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Excellent. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I, I want to talk about kind of a spiritual biography, but with you, in terms of your journey. But one of the things that I, I talked to people a lot about was you helped me to understand Jesus Christ. I asked you once, I remember we were sitting on the balcony at your condominium at the time, and I asked you, I said, look, um, I have to be honest, I have a prejudice against the idea of Jesus, that a lot of Jewish people have kind of sneering comments that they make about, come on, he was a he's one of ours, he's a rabbi, I mean, but the son of God, I mean, let's, let's don't get crazy. And I carry that around with me, but I wanted to... Uh, while I was doing my spiritual direction training, one of the courses read, um, that was invented by the one of the founders of Renewal, uh, Reb Zalman Shakter Shalomi, he put it as, go and find out how people get it on with God. So I came to you and I said, so help me with this. And you said, well, okay, Ralph, uh, first of all, on his driver's license, it doesn't say Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Um, Jesus is the human manifestation of the divine that we can talk to and have a relationship with. And Christ is a cosmic consciousness. 
And I re- am I getting that right? I love um, your help with my own memory of the things that I may or may not have said. <laughs> but I love that. Yes, I think that is a true reflection of what I was saying that day. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful question. Uh, you, as I heard you describe earlier, your own roots, you and I each came from very clear, clearly defined, boundaried faith traditions. And it seems to me that in each of our streams, we are learning to see the connections in this beautiful uh, relational interdependent world. And so, yes, for me, Christ is 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 a universal but not in a, an overcoming kind of to convert you way um description of of the power of love in the world the love that holds together um people that 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 holds such promise for how we can be with one another so help me with this part god is love because i still find that i hear that and i think well I mean, if God is everything, God is hate too. So why are we so sure that the human emotion of love is what God is? That's such a good question. Um, I was thinking, of, as you asked it, about my own teaching, you know, as a child through, through young adulthood, further into adulthood, this message that God is love. There was very little both and in, in my upbringing, in, in my tradition. It was all either or. So yes, there was this world, there was heaven, there was hell, you better stay on the straight and narrow kind of. So there was no holding together. I think the question you raise, <laughs> um, I haven't actually I've been thinking about lately, but it's it's about the both end of life, right? We're presented with really, really tough things and not all sweet things. And, and so it's finding the way of reconciliation. It's finding the way of connection. It's finding the way of understanding our deep, true relationship with one another in this creation. You know, when I was moderator, I... I invited the church, well, first of all, I love how the United Church describes the role of moderator and has since its beginning in 1925. The the job of the moderator is to stir in the hearts of the people a sense of God as revealed in Christ, heartening and strengthening the church. And so (laughs) I said, sure, and then had... (laughs) I can and, do that. I can do that. <laughs> well, and then re- received years of people stirring my heart and uh, strengthening and encouraging me. And, and so I, the, 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 in, those, in those years, I was inviting the church into participating in God's healing of soul, community, and creation. So to go back to your question, I, that that sense of wholeness and healing wouldn't make sense if we weren't so divided within ourselves and with and between one another, right? So, so there is that reality in the world. Um, that, that so, calls l- love is a healing force. I believe it is. It's an energetic, in, intentional healing force. When I pray. I pray for the well-being of other beings, and I believe that makes a difference in addition to what I do. I find there's a lot of people, uh, some of them who come for counseling, who, well, there's two things for them. Religion isn't speaking to them, and prayer particularly isn't speaking to them. That they, They know how to do it in their tradition, but it's it's been hollowed out somehow yeah well i i really don't know that i was i was going to say that i was really taught how to pray when i was a child of my tradition i was taught how to recite words 
but it was in my adult years that with the help of Christian spiritual directors who do, I'm sure, the kind of mm. work you do. Yeah, yeah. They, and, and how they would describe their work was holy listening. Right. To help me notice the movement of God, the movement of love, of grace in my own life, um, of connection, of reconciliation, and so on. So my spiritual directors, uh, one was rooted in the Benedictine tradition, one was rooted in the Ignatian tradition. So here's this good Protestant girl, right, who's, who's really literally the product of, of the United Church of Canada coming together. One set of grandparents were Presbyterian, one were Methodist, very activist, very um, material, materially engaged in the world with good works. And these spiritual directors helped me to understand there was a whole other dimension to, to uh, connecting with this idea of prayer that to, to pray with scripture, to dedicate time, to, to sit with uh, an intention to connect lovingly with God, however we name God, um, with our own lives, with the people who, who we are aware of in their suffering, who, who we love, who we may not know. And um, so they helped me fill that hollowed out sense of prayer and realize mm. that there was a lot more to it. And so I, I mean, I'm in forever indebted because it gives a, I don't know how you pray. Uh, it feels to me like it gives a lift to life when I, when I begin the day this way. Mm. I, I, I when I was when I was doing the Ignatian exercises with one of those directors, um, one of the invitations was to paraphrase for our own voice and our own heart uh, a prayer of Saint Ignatius. So I did that, and the result was that I start my day with the words, "May every thought that tugs for my attention be brought into your light. May I allow you to guide my speaking." May everything I do be connected to my being in you, so all that I am reflects your love. <sighs> it just helps me move into an intention for the day. Yeah, beautiful. You know, when you ask how I pray, um, what I learned to do over my years now is and it's the same with meditation, is I take those ideas and I move them out of what I, what you would generally expect to be the way you do it. Uh, so for prayer, first of all, I think life is a prayer. Life is your prayer. So the living of your life is, the, is your prayer. Uh, you can see it as your song, uh, if you'd like. Uh, but for me, praying can be non-rational I can drum and by doing the drumming I have hand drums and you know all around me in here and by doing the drumming uh, I take myself away from my monkey mind and put myself in flow with what's going on because if you're drumming and you're trying to control the drumming you're not going to be drumming very well You'll be out of rhythm and out of out of sync pretty quickly with yourself and whatever it is that is arising by hitting that drum. But if you let go, then you're in communion with whatever is going on around here that is too much for me to understand. So I try to keep myself away from images of God because for me, as I've said on this show, God is not a noun. God is a verb. It's an action, a flow. So, and it's such a freighted word at this point in time. So many people have taken it and, you know, thrown it into a dumpster and, and told everybody, go jump in and eat. Um, it, it, that it's, I try not to get attached to those notions of things. I try to, the other thing is, and this has been refined by doing spiritual direction with people, uh, is extemporaneous prayer, blessings for someone, for, and I do that on this program at the end of the program with whoever I'm speaking with, 
to to offer a blessing is 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 another way of doing it and, and it's not you know to the you know when i look at a jewish prayer book it's still in, in king james language in a hebrew prayer book and it's the lord and the king of kings and there's all these things that I, I just like, I have no idea what we are talking about. And it means absolutely nothing to me. Um, so that's why when I say I'm not that kind of rabbi, right? Because I, I just don't think that's where it is. Does that make sense? Completely. It's, it's completely, it's one of the, it's one of the ways I get around the labels for God by saying me every thought that tugs my attention be brought into your light. When I am in, um, in the bush, that you is addressed to the wholeness of life, to loving intention in the universe differently than when it is when I sit listening to music, when I sit watching a candle flame. Um, I agree with you. The labels for God distanced, distance us from God. So I, like you, long for that direct experience of that, of that flow, as you said, that energetic love, uh, the force that's, that's in the world that we know, that we tap into in those moments. And I think it's so different from the prayers that my grandparents and my parents prayed. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying about aging. I'm so grateful for my parents and my grandparents that they, they, they had a language of faith that obviously um, fueled their intentions as well, that they introduced me to a life of, of faithful discipline, self-discipline. And I, I can say, yes, grandma, granddad, yes, mom and dad, and here I am now. And actually, as my mom uh, aged, she was reading her, her best source about Jesus Christ, as we were talking earlier, was Deepak Chopra. So, oh, yeah. you know, I come from uh, spiritually attentive hearts when you hear that. Tell me a bit about this idea of discipline, faith and discipline. How does that work for you? I think it matters what I do with my life. I, I grew up um, with forebears who took care of the land, who respected that, who were deeply connected, I would say, to, their, to themselves because they were connected for caring for land. Um, uh, they chose what they cared about. I choose what to invest energy in. Um, once had a, a minister whose who, whose first degree was in science, was in physics, and he liked to say that nature abhors a vacuum. So so, it matters that we bring loving intention, that we bring acts of integrity so that what you described as earlier as suffering as all those of hate of other things in the world may get pushed more to the margins of our lives and we're we're intentional and we're focused on what we we what we pay attention to at the center of our lives and it's, it's an active journey though you also know that Parker Palmer has been a good friend and, and teacher to me. Um, I so identify with Parker's journey because he too grew up in a very activist church. He was on the verge of, and he was a lay, he's a lay person, right? He didn't, mm. he didn't choose to uh, become an ordered minister within his tradition. Um, it was very he, he's, Qu he's Quaker. He is Quaker now, yeah. but he grew, he grew up in uh, the Methodist church, in a very activist yeah. church, which uh, was very well aligned. Those That tradition was very aligned with him becoming a community organizer. He was near burnout as a community organizer when he uh, became a friend of Henry Nowens, or Henry became a friend of his at Yale, and Henry introduced him to... Um, 
well, it was more Henry's work too that introduced him to to um, the contemplative, to the power of the contemplative life, to bring next to his active life. And Parker knew he wasn't really called to be part of the Catholic community, but about that time he became the dean of Pendle Hill, which is a Quaker retreat center, and he learned from Quakers uh, who are what, some. What of the do you best. think? Yeah, what do you think Quakers offer to the world? Well, when you speak of discipline, their their discipline of sitting in silence in community to deeply listen to what is is being um, uncovered in their hearts as they sit in silence together in community for one another and for the world. Um, deeply listening, that's discipline to, to sit in silence and prayerfully listen for the divine spark within, they would say. Right. Well, I think actually Hasidic Jews use that term. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah. the holy listening is, I, I try to simply say it as listening from your heart to the heart of another person, because people can relate to that idea of a heart. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when you were saying that just now, I thought we live in a world now where listening is almost out of the question. It's proclaiming, it's taking territory, it's it's overwhelming people with, with your opinions and thoughts. And, you know, the, the lack of discipline in our social media uh, discourse, um, the information, the bits of un unattached information floating around that have no context, aren't, aren't even knowledge, let alone wisdom. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, because part of that is fueled by people who, as they have throughout millennia are warriors for God. So, you know, it's weaponizing God and is a, a well-worn tradition. And I just think that, like, if you want a buzzkill at a party, just say God. <laughs> and people will just be like, oh, a crazy person. Mm. Let's not do that. So it's become, the currency is devalued, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, <laughs> yes. So how do and we I, have a discourse then? Well, I think that we deeply listen to one another, for starters, as you just said, um, that we develop a capacity for silence and for consideration and for reflection. You know that um, the work I'm, I'm doing now is 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 facilitating circles of trust and i also mentor new facilitators in this work and it's not unlike what you do in spiritual direction it's holding a safe space a container a trustworthy place by which people can listen to their own hearts reconnect with what is deep within i, I mean riffing on on thomas merton there is a hidden wholeness there so so to give one another that opportunity to listen carefully enough and respectfully enough to notice where, what that wholeness is when, as you say, so much in our culture has us um, distracted from that, has us um, uh, trying to fix, save, advise um, one another, uh, shut down one another. Uh, as Parker likes to say, the soul's like a wild animal in the bush. And if you want to see it, you don't go crashing through the woods, yelling and screaming for it to come out. <laughs> you know, you sit on the edge and you create the conditions that may be trustworthy and conducive enough for that soul to risk making an appearance, that animal to risk making an appearance. And when you see that, you go, oh, there is nothing more beautiful. So I, yes, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't begin and end talking about God. Yeah. <laughs> Without, because it shuts us down. It shuts us down. It, it chases our souls into the woods. Yeah. When someone is trying to fix me, save me, right. which uh, Christians have been known for, um, correct, um, set, set me uh, straight somehow. Yeah. I may, I may look like I'm still there in the conversation, but my soul is far away. And, and so I think we begin with that deep 
respect for each soul, for each person, um, and the divinity within. Yeah, I find that um, when I speak to people, I talk about spirituality as a relationship-driven idea to yourself, to others, and to the unknown. But that religions are attempts at fitness programs, right? That, for instance, the best part of the Jewish fitness program for me is the Sabbath. If there's just one thing to take from, from the religion by other people, if we all actually did a Sabbath, 25 hours where we were just being and not doing, around the globe, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions alone <laughs> over the period of a year, you know, a 7% reduction per year would be astronomically uh, impactful. Mm -hmm. um, so that there are these wisdoms in every tradition, right? In uh, the Hindu philosophy of Aveda Vedanta, the consciousness, the presence, so that you come from a place where there is, you are actually here and present. Like you were just saying, you can't listen actively and beautifully and, and in a holy way if you're not present, if you're just waiting for the other person to finish so you can convince them that maybe they should be seeing it your way. And religion is as guilty of this as anything else. Absolutely. I love that image of the fitness program because, because the, uh, the fruit is a greater sense of health and wholeness, right? It's, mm. uh, and, and I do see it as a force field of love. The, the Sabbath is such a beautiful example of caring for ourselves enough to, and, and for respecting, well, first of all, respecting that tradition scripture to, to honor that Sabbath day and, you know, to give one day a week to that which is more important than, than my livelihood um, that is important for community and is important for creation. And, and my conviction is that whenever we have the discipline to pay attention to one of those three, soul, community, creation, it, it, it affects the other two, you know, there's a health, there's a health benefit for the rest. And so even in my own upbringing in the community, I was a part of when my forebears were so engaged in active um, mission work. Um, and I inherited that kind of, it's all about good works without really much attention to my own inner wellness. Um, they were, they were, they were, that was an entry point. <laughs> that was an entry point into something that is about inner health, well, wellness and is, is about the health of the community and the planet. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I think we're coming to understand the both and of this more. Everything was so either or in those days. And well, there's still so much polarization, my God. It's, it, it's yes. I mean, it, it makes me wonder though, when you speak about an activist faith, by taking positions, we sometimes end up, even if we're convinced that we're on the side of the angels in the conversation, we end up with this polarity where people just can't hear each other. You know, I, I, I've done a lot of work in the environmental movement with political parties and some environmental groups. And, you know, as a communications person, you bang your head against the wall saying, exactly how do I need to say this for you to understand that we are raping Mother Earth? Like, exactly what do I need to say here? And yet, it doesn't punch through because it, it doesn't affect the reptilian brain. But then I don't want to find myself on Twitter, set, you know, pointing out to people that they're misguided, they're wrong, they're not doing the best thing. Because once you take an activist position, you, you have people in polarity. So all these beautiful things we've just been talking about can end up not being used. It depends on how, right? It always depends on how. If, if I'm on a mission to enlighten you, that will not work. Um, and so I think people found it helpful when I was moderator 
And, and you, you'll recall, I was at the Copenhagen talks, I was at the Durban talks, I was at the Paris, Paris talks, in the first two, as the active moderator in the, in the, at the Paris talks, at, at leading by then the United Church delegation that was now broader, <laughs> included a young and indigenous voices, um, as a former moderator. And I was leading that, that presence, prayerful and, um, and spiritual alongside other spiritual leaders in the world. So even in, I mean, right from the start at Copenhagen, when I was first elected moderator, I wasn't there wagging my finger. I was there to say, I'm here uh, as, as a representative of a spiritual community, as the elected leader of the community that knows something about abundant life. How do you see abundant life? How will we access abundant, abundant life together for ourselves and for our children and their children and their children and their children as faithful people? We were, I think, taking a different approach than an activist approach. People sometimes are surprised when I say, the reason I, I, I was in those places was because of prayer. It, I, it was a deep sense of call to be there and to be encouraging, encouraging national leaders, leaders at the UN. And I can tell you, a lot of those people pulled me aside because they needed a break from the relentless kind of barrage. Sometimes we prayed together. Sometimes we just listened together. I offer open, honest questions. As if I'm not going to try to save someone, I can turn to wonder about how they are and how it is with them and do what you do so well in, in interviewing and offering spiritual accompaniment of offering open, honest questions. Not, you know, have you read, but well, <laughs> who do you go to for, <laughs> for sustenance in times like these? Genuine curiosity, right? For their sake, yeah. not for my own. Yeah, yeah. to open up their own curiosity for their own lives so that they might find their own particular call to an identity and integrity through this. Each of those people at those climate talks, every one of those national delegation leaders, the national leaders that showed up, they, they have pain in their heart about what's happening. Um, no one can be blind to what's happening. Well... That's not true. Uh, I don't believe that. I believe that we um, we're living as we always have in in ways where there's a mechanism in a human being that can say, "I know for Donald Trump. I know that, that he's lying. Not me, the person who's a true Trump believer. I, I know he's lying. It's irrelevant. I don't care." What I care about is that I, he is the closest thing to me that I can see. And I dem, I'm so fearful of my own future and my place in this world is diminishing. And I need the certainty of what he offers me. The certainty that his lie is so big that it might be true. That what he's doing is for me. And that others want to take that away from me. You know, heroin use for men 55 years of age and older, white men in Ohio, was one of the highest per capita in the United States. Why? Because they'd lost meaning. They were told that if they had a way of life, that they were going to have that way of life and prosper from it in their own middle class way, uh, till they died. And 2008 was proof to everyone in there that... Uh, Extractive capitalism had just done a face plant on, on Wall Street and everyone just said, nothing to see here, moving on. So these people weren't heard. So they don't care that he lies. They care that he's going to magically bring back their life. And that's what dictatorship runs on. Right? Fair enough. Fair enough. They weren't heard. They need to be heard. Heroin use because of broken hearts. Yeah. So. So I, I do think, and I have seen evidence 
that when people are given an opportunity to name how a change in climate has destroyed their crops, how consumerism run rampant has destroyed their own jobs and so on and so forth. There, there is pain that those folks have been carrying for a long time that yes, has not been acknowledged and is connected to the larger global catastrophe and pain, right? Yes, but I, but, but I think there's a shadow that religion yes. often is portrayed in terms of light, the inner uh, light, the inner spark, yes, the light, the yes. light of, of the world. Yes. I mean, literally the light of the world, Jesus being yes. the light of the world. And yeah. yet the unrealized shadow allows for these dark feelings and dark uh, intentions to fester and, and, and pus-like wounds that end up with, you know, Germany in 1935, where every sign said we are on the road to hell. And they've joyfully, gladly embraced it. And millions of people became subhuman and were murdered. Rwanda, Cambodia, that we have a shadow and that religion sometimes doesn't really allow us to find the beauty in the shadow. It, it just tells us to vanquish the shadow and yes. we will find enlightenment. I mean, listen to the words we use. Yes, and I appreciate what you're saying because the shadow is in each of us, right? So we have to pay attention to the interplay of shadow and light in each of us, lest we cast more shadow than light. I think and, that's the challenge. Yeah. The unrealized shadow can become monstrous in a person's life, not, not just in society as a whole, because the struggle becomes that. I wanted to, I want to switch gears for a second. I'm talking to Marty Tyndall, friend of mine, a former moderator of the United Church and a spiritual uh, leader in, in still in, in the life that she leads. But there was something you and your husband tried a little while ago where you really, and I was fascinated by the experiment and I was really hopeful for it. And I want to just discover wh why you did it and how it turned out. And it was this idea of co-housing with other people as you get older that one of you had turned to the other and you'd always said to people, and I'd visited you in your, in your condo, great neighborhood, really nice place. And you said, well, they're going to take us out of here feet first. And then you realized, looked at each other, went, you know what, they'll probably take one of us out of here feet first. And then the other one will be left alone. So you wanted to do a co-housing piece with people. Can you tell me a bit about what happened and how it turned out and what you've learned from it? Another example of what a great listener you are. Um, I think you were one of our inspirations with your Sabbath project for bringing people together around a table weekly. Everybody brings something, share a meal. That is what it's all about, right? Um, so yes, we were, yes. So out of love for one another, we said, well, one of us is going to be carried out. And also out of... Um, our observation of what happened to our parents um, who, who lived very full lives for the most part until I'll just say my, my aunt and, and my mother were our, the last two that we lost of that generation. And they, they were vibrant in every way, mentally as capable as one can be at 84 and 90 to the end, but mentally capable, spiritually generous, but they needed physically some more support. They needed to be in a, a community of support. And so they each really saw no other option than to enter a retirement community. And um, they lived well to the end, but it was the saddest thing that they had to try then to start to make friends. Then, at the time when they were in some ways their most diminished, in terms of getting to know people. So at any rate, we thought it would be a fine idea to create a co-housing community to age in place together. Um, and so we, with our friends, Ted and Hillary, so my spouse, Doug and I, and our friends, Ted and Hillary, 
kept talking about this over the years. We said, oh, well, we could buy that house and live together and help one another. We could do this and do that. And then we one day said, are we serious about this? Let's go away for a weekend and really talk about it. And we did. And we came out of it and said, yes, we're serious about this. And we became very passionate about what was possible. And we created Wine on the Porch, Inc. <laughs> so this was our, um, our co-op. And, uh, and then we had these sold out crowds at all of our information sessions. Everybody thought this was a grand idea. And, and we was fabulous. We had all these conversations. And then we, um, then we, we ended up with 11 potential people for a house that we imagined would be six unit holders. Uh, each unit holder could be a, a single or a couple. And we, um, we, we got serious. We, 11 of us had potluck dinners for, for every month for, for a very long time. And we really never got anywhere. Uh, then we, we, in the sense that we, then we had, we thought four, well, we had four who went away on retreat together, four couples, and we worked out a memorandum of understanding. I'm getting into the weeds, but we'd agreed to come back two weeks later and I'll sign it. And we figured if we were in, we'd find two others, um, either singles or couples who would really take the plunge with us, buy a property, renovate, whatever, create a home together. And we, um, the other two um, found reasons not to sign. So at the end of the day, there we were, the four of us again, then we, we bought a property. We thought this is a fine place. We can renovate this. We have our beautiful architectural drawings. We started another round of conversations, had lots of people joining us for conversation. We thought we were all, we were almost there. At the end of the day, Ralph, those who, those who really wanted to do it couldn't quite afford it and those who could afford it didn't want to do it and I think it's a parable for our times the biggest stumbling block was a shared kitchen and dining area those who could continue to afford to have their own condos or whatever um, felt that they wanted to maintain their independence as long as they could. We saw interdependence as a way to remain, in a sense, able and healthy and living life more fully. They saw it as a sacrifice. And I think, it's a, I think it is a symbol of our time. And it was a heartbreak to finally get to the point of saying, we don't have anyone who's going to to join us in this. And just a few months ago, Doug and I moved back into a condo and Ted and Hillary moved back into a condo and we will each do our best to create community where we are. That's sad. Well, I can't leave you there. So then we started reading about others who are trying. And there was, a, there was an article in the Star about an architect and a designer here in Toronto who were planning an, a, a, a co-living project and they had a property in West Toronto, which is where we were. And um, we reached out to them and said, oh my goodness, we're interested in what you're doing. Here's who we are. And they said, oh, well, you were our inspiration. We came to, a, to an event at the Center for Social Innovation that you were speaking to and you gave us the ideas. It seems to us, to Doug and I, that they are going to pull it off because they can proceed without needing the funds of partners. Right. And then um, once they build it, I imagine others will come and we may be among those others who come. So that was our stumbling block. We learned a lot. We have no regrets. We met marvelous people and we think we paved the way for someone else to succeed in this. And frankly, here's another wild thing. We have millennial friends who keep saying they'd like us to join their house, their co-housing house. So we're, our options, you know, we will still consider for living in community with others. Wow. 
first of all, I, I do in hearing you feel like you are going to, you have planted seeds and they will become flowers. And you may be in one of those. But I also feel like it is such a leap for us to give up our private good that we've been so conditioned that that's the goal of the, of the project, uh, that we live even raising families in isolation from each other. And with the lack of, you know, the, the emptying out of churches and synagogues and, and temples and mosques of, you know, generations of people who have a different sense of what to worship, um, we don't have a common good that's really vibrant. So, I mean, you look at a suburb um, and it is the flower of, of the private good, the private car, the private house, the private mall. You don't go dance in the middle of a mall. The uh, mall cops will throw you out the door. You're, you're bad for business, buddy. Um, and yet that's where older people often go just to take a walk and be around people. And the loneliness, you know, uh, there are co-housing units in um, Denmark and they work. One of the reasons they work, as you know, is they're all women. Their husbands are all gone. And so the, their vulnerability drives them to co cooperate. Couples would be harder because it's just like, well, why did my husband and I need to come down to a kitchen when you're there? And what if you take the coleslaw and we didn't ask you to take the coleslaw and I don't want to eat when you eat uh, because we have our ways. Um, but that's what's missing for so many people. They're starving for community. But in the present situation, it's every person or every couple or every family for themselves, I guess. You said it, Ralph. Single women are pulling this off he, in here, here in Canada too, right? Louise Bartz, yeah. which and her housemates in Port Perry, single women do appear able to pull it off. <laughs> um, but the, you know, I, I still think couples can do this. I still have hope for the movement. After many years of trying, we weren't successful, but we're still encouraging others. People are still in touch with us, and as I say, we may be able to pull this off. I still have a lot of hope for those hollowed out churches and synagogues and, and, and other and mosques and other. Why? Because here's, here's why this is a shameless kind of plug, but I've been asked to be the national mentor for something called faithful footprints in the United church. And it's it, the pro it's a program by which the church is trying to meet its commitment to get to at least 80% carbon emission reductions by 2050. And the way to do that is through our buildings. You know, you would know between 30 and 40% of all of our greenhouse gas emissions in Canada come from leaky buildings. We have our share of them in the United Church, more than our share of them. So this is a program by which the church is helping congregations, faith communities, those who own, um, well, the, the, the properties of the church to reduce their emissions by, you know, addressing their buildings and doing other things too, but primarily addressing their buildings. And when we do that in a way that addresses the other needs of the community, we're becoming community hubs. So it's not just about the worshiping community right. that's meeting there. It's, it's caring enough for the community to reach out to the people who are walking the streets around that building and in a way that's visibly compassionate toward our children, our grandchildren, those coming coming behind us around climate. And um, I'm kind of excited about that. I think our buildings are our most visible expression of love, or not. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Depends who's in them. As the, I just flashed on one of the high holiday services at a Moroccan synagogue where they had mentioned from the, from the Bima, the pulpit, uh, who had donated that year and who hadn't and it ended up with a fist fight in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the other things I'd love to see, though, is a deeper, a much deeper ecumen ec ecumenical effort. Mm. That, yes. you know, yes. I always say I'd walk by a Catholic church and think, oh, I'd love to go in there for their service, but I won't know when to get up and when to sit down or should I be on my knees? And they're going to go, well, you're not from around these parts, are you? And I'd be like, oh, I, yeah, I'm the Jewish guy. Sorry, I was just visiting. 
we, you know, I, they have a thing here in Hamilton called uh, uh, Art Crawl and Super Crawl. And I, I always thought we should have in different cities spirit crawls where people just go to different uh, faith organizations and, and institutions and just, you know, spend a little time with each other. Like I said at the beginning, how do you get it on with God? There, there is a, there, there's an idea for something called a cathedral project um, in the West that I'm very excited about. And um, so the idea is that the synagogue would put on solar panels or do something to mm. improve it and would pay forward their energy savings, their energy costs to the church down the road who with their energy savings in dollars would pay right. forward to the, the next faith community um, that, you know, toward their greening, right? So that there would be a kind of a common communal commitment and helping one another along the way. I'm very excited about that. That's and cool. That's, that's kind of a cool idea, isn't it? Yeah, well, this is the thing is uh, if we can stop building our own temples and tents, you know, and share them. I mean, I, I know of a... In Boulder, there's a, a Lutheran church that on Saturdays is a synagogue and on Friday nights because it's not their service time. Sunday's their service time. So mm-hmm. um, they've learned a lot from each other over the years. So I, I love all that. There's a United Church congregation in the synagogue in Waterloo, Ontario, the Cedars. Oh, cool. It's, it's been there for years. Same thing. Yeah, they share a building. It's beautiful. We need to do more of that. We do. My friend, uh, our time is up. It's been great to just spend some time with you. It's been so long, especially with all this um, pandemic craziness. No one sees each other, but uh, uh, I want to bless you. I really do. I want to bless you for all the beautiful things that you've done and you're doing. I want to bless you for the open-heartedness with which you live your life. And I I bless your family who are all such quality people. And I I hope for you nothing but uh, joy and happiness and that the sorrows are carried not just by you, but in the hearts of those that love you and take care of you as well, so that they're not quite as heavy as they can be. So thank you for doing this with with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, if only I could offer you such an eloquent blessing, Ralph, but please know I too bless you and your family, all those you love and care about your community, those people who have the great opportunity to receive your spiritual accompaniment. Marty Tyndall, I thank you so much. Marty Tyndall uh, has been my guest. This program is called Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, I'm Ralph Benmergi, and uh, we have a Facebook page if you'd like to come by and visit. Uh, And uh, we try to put these out once a week, uh, so usually on a Thursday. So there's a whole bunch of them in the the bank if you want to take a look or take a peek. Uh, You take care of each other, and we'll see you again on Not That Kind of Rabbi.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.